Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We're finishing out chapter 25 this morning. We've been walking through two chapters which go hand in hand, Matthew chapter 24 and then again in chapter 25. Matthew chapter 24 begins with a question that is posed by the disciples in which, in which they ask, <laughs> in which they ask, Jesus, what is the sign of your returning? When will the end of the age be and, and how will we know all of these things? And Jesus begins to address himself to some of those questions. And he, he works his way through chapter 24, speaking about different things that pretend the approach of the end, while at the same time saying very clearly and very specifically that no one knows the day or the hour. And so Jesus gives us some clues and some hints that we can look for and pay attention to, and we can sense the nearness of the end as it approaches, while at the same time, we are reminded that none of us can have any certainty regarding exactly when the end comes. Then we worked our way into Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus has been teaching through a series of parables, illustrating what the arrival of the kingdom of heaven will be like. And the first parable he tells is about ten bridesmaids, five of which were wise and five of which were foolish. The foolish ones kept thinking they had plenty of time, they had plenty of time, and uh, they felt that they were ready for Jesus to return, for the bridegroom to return at a time that they thought was appropriate. And then it was delayed and they ran out of oil. And we find that the wise bridesmaids, they, they anticipated every possibility and they stayed faithful and they stayed true regardless of what the circumstances might be. Jesus then tells a parable about individuals who are charged to engage in business while their master is away. Two of the servants did it right. They took what the Lord gave them and they multiplied it. They were faithful with it. One said, you know what? He's a hard man. He's hard to please. And so I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take what the Lord has given me and I'm just going to throw it in a hole in the ground and not going to do anything with it. And of course, the purpose of that parable was to remind us that we're called to make some sort of a spiritual profit for the Lord, to take what he has given us and he's given us everything we need in order to honor him and to glorify him. And that brings us to this last parable now, the kingdom of heaven, the return of Christ. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. Before we jump in this morning, I'd like to just pause for a moment and ask the Lord to help us to open our minds to understand what it is that he's saying before we, before we get to work. So if you would, please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us for warning us, for encouraging us to always keep our focus and to always keep our gaze on that fact, that, that inescapable fact of history that you are coming again. You are coming to this world. You are coming to visit your people. You are coming to establish righteousness and to uphold the truth and to do justice. And we just say amen, Lord. We see all the atrocities and all of the heartache. We see the war and the violence and all all manner of evil and wickedness done all around us, and we just look forward to that day, Lord, in which you will come to visit your people, and we will be freed from all of that pain, and we will be free to live with you in your presence forever. Father, as we look now at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and following, and as we consider the great separation that will happen on that fateful day, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the need for asking the question, are we a part of your people or not? And I pray, Lord, that as we look at this parable of this separating of goats from sheep, 
I pray, Lord, that your spirit would help us to understand as we ask that question this morning. Are we truly counted among your people or not? Help us to see that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In schoolyards all across Canada, from time immemorial, there have always been a group of boys and girls that will go out at lunchtime and they will engage in some form of play. Or they'll go out recess time and they'll participate in a pickup game of baseball or kickball or dodgeball. There's always a ball involved. And so from time immemorial, there's always been a need to pick teams. I mean, if we're going to have a game of ball, we're going to have to have two teams that are sort of in competition with each other. And so the question becomes, how will we choose those teams? As a young man growing up, it was always baseball. I don't know why that works as it does in Texas. I mean, the national sport of Texas, the state sport is, is football, not baseball. But for whatever reason, in grade school, it was always baseball. That was the game we were playing. I was blessed to have long legs that could cover twice as much ground. So I was fast. That made me a good candidate to be chosen to be on somebody's team. But with baseball, I could not hit the ball to save my life. So the question is, what good are legs if you can't actually get on base? They're not very good at all. So I humbly offer forth to you this little tidbit that if you're one of those people in the schoolyard pick that was waiting to be chosen, waiting, waiting, and you were one of the last ones to be chosen, I can relate to you. I've been there. That's me. Maybe I'm the only one here, and that's okay. My identity's in Christ. I've gotten over it. I'm not bitter. I'm not holding on to any repressed anger from my childhood experiences. But that's the fundamental question. Everybody's playing the game. We want to play. We want to be a part. Now, how do we get chosen to be on the team? That is a question that we've all asked at one, form, at one point in time and another as we've come to those schoolyard games. That is the same question that Jesus is calling for us to ask as we approach this final parable in Matthew chapter 25. It's the most important question that we could ever ask because it is the question on which our eternal destiny hinges. Are we going to be chosen by Jesus? Have we been chosen by Jesus? What is the nature of the choice? What, how does he choose us? On what basis does he pick us, so to speak, to be on his team? How does that happen? Jesus answers that question here in Matthew chapter 25. As you look at this chapter, this final parable, you might be tempted to come to the conclusion, if you're just looking at it at a very surface level, that the decision that Christ makes is based upon some spirit of philanthropy, some altruistic characteristic that we might choose to embrace where we go out and we just do good works. On a very surface level reading of this passage, you might come to the conclusion that Jesus will choose you or pick you, so to speak, to be on his team on the basis of what a good job you do taking care of the people around you. And I want you to understand that we're going to have to go way deeper because what Jesus is describing in this passage is fundamentally different. Look with me, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. We're going to pick it up here. 
Jesus makes the statement, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Again, His return to this earth is assumed. It's never doubted. It's never questioned. Jesus is coming. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He came the first time as a carpenter born to, uh, the son of a carpenter born to a carpenter living in Nazareth. He came the first time as a poor kid from a redneck town born in the most humble of estates, born in a manger. When He returns, the, it's going to be di- totally different. No longer a humble kid from a backwoods town born to a poor family. Now the true king will return. He will come in glory. And when he comes the second time, he's coming to pick, to choose, to separate. The text goes on. He will sit on his glorious throne. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all of the nations. And that is the other aspect of this. When Jesus came the first time, he came to Israel, born in Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth. It's a corner, a remote corner of the Roman Empire. If you lived in Israel, you could not have escaped these events. If you lived in Jerusalem, it could not have escaped your attention that a great prophet had arisen. But if you lived in Rome, or if you lived further out into the far reaches, France, Britain, you probably would not have known or had any idea that God was visiting his people when he was born in Bethlehem. You did not have any awareness of those things. God comes first to Israel. He comes first to his own. But the second time, there is no excuse. The Great Commission will have covered the globe. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group will have heard the good news that there is a God in heaven who has loved us and has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. And so when he comes the second time, the nations will be required to present themselves before him. Every nation, every country. The statement is explicit. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. So the first thing we need to understand is this is going to be a time of global judgment in which every country will be required to stand before his discerning gaze, his look of judgment. You know, some people think that that's just a little silly, but it's routinely talked about throughout the Old Testament. God routinely says that when he comes, he is going to come in judgment. He's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the nations, and he has done it in history past. For example, in Isaiah 13, we find that his judgment has been repeatedly talked about. In Isaiah 13, God, the prophet Isaiah, addresses himself to this question. He says God is going to bring judgment. And he mentions various forms of judgment that are inflicted upon the nations. The Chaldeans, God is going to judge them. Moab, God is going to bring judgment on them. Syria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, it talks about the great deserts of the south. In chapter 15, Moab is discussed as being judged. In chapter 17 of Isaiah, Syria is discussed as being judged. In chapter 19, Egypt is discussed as being the recipient of God's judgment. In chapter 21, the great deserts of the south, what we understand to be present-day Saudi Arabia. In chapter 23, the Sidonians, the Phoenicians. Isaiah is not the only prophet. Other prophets, Ezekiel, chapter 1, again, Syria and Damascus. He goes on to talk about Tyre and Phoenicia, Edom, Moab. Now, for almost all of those countries, with the exception of Egypt, guess what? You don't see those countries anymore. Point to the Moabites. Point to the Hittites. Point to the Phoenicians, the Sidonians. 
These are individuals who came into proximity with the people of God, with the nation of Israel. They understood that there was a one true God, that they had a calling to honor him and to worship him and to turn to him. These are nations that chose rather to make war. These are nations that chose rather to oppose. And over and over and over again through the Old Testament, God is making the statement, I will do judgment. And now we look around and we don't see those countries anymore. When God promises that if you do not turn to him in repentance, he will bring judgment, that is not an idle threat. That is not a fleeting caution. This is a significant, a significant teaching that Jesus is preaching to us this morning that has historical precedent. The nations will be gathered for judgment. Canada will be brought before the throne of the Lord. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, I'm going to be able to hide myself within my neighbors and the people that live on my street. He won't come to me individually. I'll be able to kind of keep my head down and find some sort of relief from his watchful eye by hiding with my family or with my neighbors. And you understand that that's not how it's going to work. The nation of Canada will come to him and every individual within this country will stand before him to give an account. The text starts off with nations. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all nations, so the nation will come. And then it gets very specific. And he will separate peoples one from another. Meaning that within the country of Canada, the individuals who comprise this country will be divided out. On what basis? What is the nature of this division? What is the nature of this choice? How does Jesus choose? He gives the answer to that question. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He makes a comparison here to flocks. Goats as opposed to sheep. Verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats he will place on the left. Now, for our purposes, this is going to become very apparent as you work your way through the chapter, through the, to the end of the chapter. Goats represent individuals who are not welcomed into his kingdom. Sheep represent individuals who are welcomed into his kingdom. And for our purposes this morning, just to expedite what he's about to teach, the sheep are the ones who do good. The goats are the ones who do bad, or I should say they're indifferent. It's not necessarily that they're hostile, but they just don't care. He goes on, if you'll look with me, he says, Come you who are blessed, verse 34, by my Father to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So the ones that are welcomed into the kingdom are individuals who are doing good. The ones who are not welcomed into the kingdom are individuals who are indifferent and don't do anything. He makes a statement in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, which again is the goats, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. Then they also will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we didn't minister to you. And his response is, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, 
You didn't do it to me. The statement to the first group is, you ministered good. Come in to the kingdom. His statement to the second group is, you didn't minister at all, so you're not welcomed into the kingdom. And if we just leave it at that, if we don't bore any deeper into the passage, we would be left with the inescapable conclusion that salvation hinges on what we do. But we need to stop for a second and consider the pictures that are used here. And there are a few clues in the text which will help us to understand. Number one, Jesus starts off with a comparison. The first thing he says is that there are sheep and there are goats. This is a rich, rich, rich metaphor that is used throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, the people of God, Israel specifically, as well as in the New Testament, Christians are described as being sheep who follow the true shepherd, the one good shepherd, and Jesus is portrayed as being the one good shepherd. Then you have goats. Now, for the vast majority of us, this doesn't really seem to matter one way or the other. Big deal, some sheep and some goats. But if you've ever actually worked in ranching, you understand there's a world of difference between trying to work with a bunch of sheep versus trying to work with a bunch of goats. I myself have never had the privilege or the pleasure of working with sheep and goats, but one of my dearest friends in the whole world, a fellow by the name of George Menifee in Texas, when everyone else is working with cattle and horses, he was a sheep farmer and he was a goat rancher. That's what he did. And one time I had the privilege of walking with him on his farm, on his ranch there in central Texas. And I said, so what's the big deal here? What's the difference? And he said, man, sheep can be such a pain. They are hard animals to work with. I said, oh, so you prefer goats? He says, well, he says goats can be such a pain too. They are hard to work with as well. They're both really challenging creatures. Said, so what's the difference? Sheep are oblivious to their surroundings. They're actually quite silly, quite foolish animals. They don't actually observe what's going on around them. They need a shepherd who's looking after them, and they get to a point in time where they just listen to the shepherd's voice and they follow the shepherd around because they know the shepherd is going to take care of them. They tend to be foolish animals, and here's what's really good about a sheep. Sheep have a strong internal drive to flock. They tend to stick together. And so even if a handful of them get to a point to where they will attach themselves to the shepherd and understand the shepherd's voice and follow the shepherd, for the most part, the flock, even if you have various newborn lambs and this sort of thing that aren't familiar with the shepherd, they'll stick together with their other sheep. They'll go together. Sometimes that's really bad, but sometimes, most of the time, it can be really good. Sometimes you'll get what he refers to, what my friend George Menifee referred to as as a Judas-type sheep. And yes, he was referencing Judas of the 12 apostles in which he'll get tearing off on a, on a path that is, for whatever reason, it's the wrong way to go, and because of the strong flocking mentality that sheep have, the whole flock will go tearing off after this sheep, even if this sheep is leading them to their ultimate destruction. Sometimes that's bad, so you've got to watch out for that. But for the most part, sheep will stick with their shepherd. I say, okay, so what about goats? He says, goats are very curious. 
Unlike sheep who largely remain oblivious to their surroundings, goats will look at everything and get into everything and try to find their way into every place that they shouldn't be. They'll get their heads stuck in fences. They'll, they'll try to jump over things. They're naturally inclined to get up on top of things, and so they're always getting up on your sheds and jumping over fences. They're always trying to get out. They're inquisitive. They're curious, and they're not as prone to flock together. If you come out and one goat is missing, don't think it's coming back because it won't. A goat will leave and look around and say, hey, I don't have any buddy goats around. And the goat doesn't care. The goat is independent-minded. He's out of there if he can get out of there. Jesus is saying here, you've got sheep and you've got goats. And while we should be cautious about pressing this point too far, it's worth noting that the people of God are described as sheep with a flocking mentality who stick together. And the goats, those individuals who are not welcomed into the kingdom of God, we understand from the nature of a goat, these are independent-minded individuals who may not really care about the fellow goats around them. And that's the point that Jesus presses further. If you look with me, they ask the question, when did we do any of these things for you? And verse 40, the king answered them and he said, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. Notice that. To one of the least of these, my brothers. So the parable, although it is often used to talk about the need for the church to be engaged in social justice and to be engaged in things like alleviating poverty and working against world hunger and all that sort of thing, if we look closely, Jesus has in mind a very specific focus. He has in mind a very particular item that he's looking for. In the second half, when he talks about the goats, he says, you didn't minister at all. And in the first half, he says, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. We, as the people of God, absolutely should be concerned about alleviating poverty and taking care of the poor and meeting physical needs. But you need to understand that when Jesus is telling this parable, talking about his return and how he's going to divide us one from the other, you need to understand that he's looking at a group of people that are gathered together that are related in some aspect, that serve each other, that minister to each other, as opposed to a group of people that are disjointed, disconnected, don't minister to each other, and quite frankly, don't even care that much about ministering to each other. We're talking about radically different groups of people. We're talking about something as radically different as that of a sheep from a goat. They say, how do we understand ourselves to be brothers? How do we understand ourselves to be a part of the family of God? Flip back with me. He's already answered that question in this in this particular gospel. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 12, and I want you to look at verse 46. Jesus is ministering. He's serving the people. His mother and his brothers come to him. They think he's a crazy guy. They want to talk to him. It says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Verse Verse 48, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Rhetorical question. Now, we would say, well, your mother's your mother, and your brothers are your brothers. Those guys right outside, that's, that, they're out there. They're waiting for you. And he's going to push back against that and say, mm-mm. It takes more than biological connection. It takes more than a blood relationship to be related to Christ. 
He makes this statement in verse 49, stretching out his hands towards his disciples, towards those individuals who are gathered together with him there, who are hearing his teaching. He says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus connects himself very explicitly with people who have a heart to obey God. And his statement here at the end of the age, when he comes in judgment, is that those people who are going to be welcomed into heaven are going to have that same heartbeat. They're going to want to be connected to those individuals who, like them, have a heart to obey the will of the Father in heaven. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've shifted. The external appearance of things is you've got people ministering to others who are also Christians. But we've just touched on what it means to be a brother of Christ. And what it means to be a brother of Christ is to have a different sort of heart. A heart where you want to do the will of God. Now, Like I said, I was never good at baseball, but one of my favorite games to play with my daughters is catch for a short period of time. (laughs) If you're here and you're a mom and a dad and you've ever played catch with an eight-year-old girl with a baseball, you know that that's fun for three or four throws. And then you get tired of running over here and running over there. What happens is you get a glove, Get a baseball. I'm like, all right, Chloe. And she's, she's super excited. All right, I'm going to throw you this baseball. All right, Dad, throw it to me. And I give a nice, gentle, nice, like it's a huge lob, right? And she's only about five to ten feet from me, and I'm, I give a nice, gentle lob. And she's over here, and, and, you know, and she's trying, and she, it hits her glove like perfectly, and then, of course, it falls out of her glove. And I'm like, okay, Chloe, throw it back to me. Throw it back to me. And she picks up the ball, and of course, she's like Nolan Ryan or something. You know, she's going to do the whole Hall of Fame fast pitch, knuckleball curve, whatever. And I'm, I'm kind of like, oh no, you know, it's coming. But I don't know why I always have that response, because it never comes at me. It like flies over there, it flies way over there. And then I'm like, oh, it's okay. And I run and I get it. And I pick it up and I throw it back to her. And then we repeat that for about four or five times. I'm like, hey, you know what? Let's go inside and drink some lemonade. You know, it's a good time for that sort of thing. This is, if I could connect this illustration to what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. There's something you get from God that you're called to throw back. I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. The issue here is becoming a different person. And as a result of becoming a different person, you're going to have a different outward lifestyle. But the fundamental issue is about becoming a different person. So that's the fundamental question. If we want to be chosen by God at the end of time to be on the winning team, so to speak, how do we get chosen? Well, you get chosen by being a different person. And only God can make you into that new creature. And that's what the Apostle John talks about right here. 
In John chapter 4, verse 7, he makes this statement, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now just stop right there. When we're looking at the events that are taking place in Matthew chapter 25, these are people that are visiting others in prison. They're giving their, their shirt off their back to clothe each other. They're giving food to each other. They're ministering to each other, as the text says. They're doing it to their fellow brothers, as the text says. You need to understand that they are outwardly, pragmatically performing acts of love. They are loving And that is the fundamental characteristic because the God that we worship, the God that we claim is our Father, is first and foremost a God of love. The text says here that we ought to love one another because God is love. Now, just to start this off, how exactly do we actually have it in us to love? You know, elsewhere in the scriptures it says that we didn't love, he first loved us. The only reason we do love, this is from Romans, the only reason that we do love is because he first loved us. You see, when we live the Christian life, if, I, if we live in the general world around us, if, if I do something to offend you, for example, I borrow your weed whacker and I forget to return it for a really period, long period of time, and you're upset because, you know, I've got your weed whacker and I've stolen it, essentially. You come to me, you say, you knock on my door, open the door, you say, I want my weed whacker back. Oh, right, yeah, sorry, I forgot, you know, and I go and I get it and I give it to you, you storm off. In that moment, I've offended the man that I've stolen his weed whacker from. The world says that we have to go to the party that is offended. If we've done the offending, if we're wrong, we go there to make amends. If I'm at the back door this morning, and Pastor Al is back there at the back door, and we're shaking hands as people are leaving, and then I decide it's time for me to leave too, and I'm in a hurry, and I turn, and Pastor Al's standing there, and I step on his foot, and I, he's kind of blocking my way, so I kind of elbow him and shove him out of the way, so I get out of the door. Well, I knock poor Pastor Al down, and I'm on my way out. He might be a little upset. <laughs> Who does that young preacher think he is? Knocking me over like this. And he would expect me to come to him at some point and say, hey, you know what? You were mean to me this morning at the back door and I, you, know, you should apologize to me. But you know, that's not how God does it. If you stop to think about it, God has never done anything wrong to us and we have sinned against him repeatedly. Wouldn't you think that it ought to be up to us to go to him? and try to reconcile and make amends? Absolutely, that's our responsibility, and yet, we don't. God's not waiting for us to come to Him, because He knows that in our depravity and the pride of our heart, we're never going to come. He Himself takes the initiative to bring about reconciliation. Notice this next, next phrase. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, that's a $500 fancy stained glass word, propitiation. What the Bible is saying there, it's a Greek word, halosmos. There's this need for justice to be done. 
All of us have sinned. We've all offended a holy God. And as a result, we stand under his judgment. Because God loves us, he wants to reconcile with us, even though he himself is the one that's been sinned against. And so overlooking those sins for the moment, he sends his son into the world. He himself taking the initiative to be reconciled. And before we get to propitiation, it's worth noting that it says in the Bible, his only begotten son. Two words in English, one word in the Greek, monogenes. Mono meaning one or single. And genes meaning begotten or born. His only son. He sends him to do the work that we should do, yet we ourselves will never do. In Jesus, knowing that man should pursue reconciliation with God, and yet knowing that we will not, in Jesus, God provides a person who will do the should've as well as the could've. He will combine what we should do, our responsibility, within his person, and he himself is the only one who can actually make amends. The should've and the could've find their union in Christ, living a sinless and perfect life. He says, I will satisfy God's demand of justice. And in doing that, he dies on the cross, bearing the penalty for our sin so that God's righteous standard can be met and at the same time, we can be forgiven and released from the debt that we owe if we will place our faith in what Jesus did. So understand this. To become a sheep requires, first and foremost, receiving the love of God. And when we say you have to receive the love of God, what we mean very specifically is you have to recognize the supreme act of love that God has performed for you on your behalf by dying in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. You have to trust that that makes you right with God because he says that is the only thing that will satisfy his standard. And so you receive that by faith. You receive that gift of love. It's as though God is pitching a ball and you catch it. But now what do you do with that ball? Because if you've been forgiven, the scriptures are clear. If you've come to know God, the overflow of your life will be now a life that reflects that forgiveness, that reflects that mercy, a life that seeks to love. John starts off in this passage, verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you love, if you love as the Bible defines love, not as the world defines love, then you know God and you've been born of God. The only way you can love the way God would have you to love is if you have first received by faith what he has done for you on the cross. You say, wait a minute, pastor, can you just clarify that for me for a second? The way that you and I typically love is not actually what the Bible defines as love. There's a, a parable told by a rabbi. 
says this rabbi encountered a man who was a fisherman. He lived by the side of the sea, and he went out and he caught fish every day, and every evening for dinner he ate fish. And the rabbi asked him, do you love fish? And he says, I love fish. They taste good. They smell good. You can, you can mix them with different sauces. You can do different things. There are different types of fish. He says, fish taste wonderful. I love fish. And he says, let me get this straight. You love fish, so that's why you go out and you catch them out of their natural habitat, smash their brains out with a rock, skin them, fillet them, and then consume them. That's love? And the fisherman thought about it, and he says, well, they sure do taste good. I love that taste. Now, for the world, that actually is a perfect picture of how we love apart from the love of God. We look at people based upon how they make us feel. Indeed, there's a Greek word for this, phileis, from which we get phileo. It means brotherly love. It's this love that we give to people because they give it back. It's this love that we engage in, in which we want to be friends with a certain person because they're funny, they tell the funny jokes, or they, they like us and they think we're cool and they want to hang out with us and we like that, and so we kind of feed off of each other in that regard. That's fish love. That's fish love. I know it may not seem that way, and in your mind, you're thinking, well, I would never bash out my friend's brains and, like, fillet him like Hannibal Lecter. I mean, that's kind of a silly proposition. You're right. But nevertheless, you still only truly love that person because of what they do for you, which means at the end of the day, you really love yourself, not that other person. That's the character of fish love. The love that is being called for here by God is a love that mirrors the love that he has for us. We don't contribute anything to God. We don't in some way make God better. We don't add to God. It's not as though God is up in heaven and he's lonely and he's like, man, I really wish I had some people to hang out with so I'm going to create these people and oh, they're sinners and I, need it. I really need them. I need them so bad so I'm going to go and die on the cross and forgive them of their sins. That is not the case of it all. God loves us because it says in scriptures, God is love. And what the Bible says is love, the Greek word that's being used there, agapao, it means that he loves us for our sake and not for his own sake. The love which he pours out upon him is most glorifying to him because it is a true, selfless, sacrificial love where Jesus dies on the cross for us, entirely for us, loving us with a true God-oriented love. The biblical form of love is completely different than the world's idea of fish love. When you receive that form of love by faith, it transforms you supernaturally, miraculously, to where John is able to say, beloved, and he's talking to fellow believers when he makes that statement, beloved, fellow Christians, And when he uses that word beloved, he's talking about people who are loved by God. Beloved, those individuals who are loved by God, who have received the love of God, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Because we are loved by God, the Apostle John can say, we should love, because that's how we know God. In this sense, love isn't like math. It's not some abstract concept that's taught on a whiteboard, two plus two equals four, and they go through all these formulas and calculations. 
In this sense, love is more like the measles. You got to catch it to really understand it. You got to know what it is, and the way, best way you know what it is is if you're experiencing it. And that's what we mean when we say you have a personal relationship with God. When you receive what Jesus did by faith on the cross, it totally transforms you. You have embraced into your life something now that radically alters your perspective, changes how you see the world, and it changes your fundamental desires to where you now want to love other people with no thought to the return on investment. But because you know God, you've received his love, you're able to freely give that love to others. There's a movie that came out a number of years ago, Field of Dreams. If you're a baseball fan, you probably have watched it. It stars Kevin Costner. I know he's not the greatest of actors, but it was still a pretty you know, halfway decent movie. In this movie, Kevin Costner is a struggling, he, he plays the part of Ray, uh, Ray Kinesis, and, he, and he's, a struggling, um, he's a struggling corn farmer in Iowa, and um, he hears a voice one day that says, if you build it, he will come. And so, he, you know, he, there's this moment where he thinks he's schizophrenic and he's struggling with this whole thing, and, and he keeps hearing this voice, and so he decides, he talks it over with his wife, and he eventually decides he's going to plow under his corn. He's going to take out a huge chunk of his cornfield, and he's already a struggling corn farmer. And of course, all the townsfolk are saying, you're crazy, you're nuts, this is ridiculous, don't do it. All throughout the movie, he's doing all these things. You keep getting these glimpses of the fact that something that the actor, Kevin Costner, the character that he is, that he is playing, um, Ray can sell it. The, the struggle that he has is that when he was younger, He got into a fight with his dad and he walked out and he never went back. And a number of years later, his dad died and and Ray, the character played by Kevin Costner, struggles with that. He feels guilty about that. He recognizes that he never made his relationship right with his father. And so all throughout the movie, this voice keeps coming and saying, if you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. And so he does. He plows under his cornfield and he builds this giant baseball field And one day he's out in his cornfield and lo and behold, Shoeless Joe Jackson, famous, famous baseball player that helped win the World Series for the 1919 uh, White Sox, shows up and he's there and he says, hey, thanks for building this field. And of course, Reagan Sella is like, you're Shoeless Joe Jackson. It's the ghost of Shoeless Joe Jackson. He's like, I, you know, I just really appreciate you building this field for us. Would you mind if I bring back a few of my buddies? Of course, what are you going to say? No, I'd rather you not. You're a ghost. This is alar- alarming, you know. That would be a poor movie. So, of course, <laughs> Kevin Costner, Ray Kinsella, he says, yeah, bring back your buddies. And lo and behold, he shows up later with the team of the 1919 World Series champions, White Sox. And they come and they're playing there on his baseball field in, in the middle of this cornfield. And you begin to think, oh, this is how, this is how Ray Kinsella is going to make his money. He's going to charge admission for people to come see a bunch of ghosts playing baseball in his cornfield. And that idea is actually floated. The movie progresses and things go along. And eventually, towards the end, the game has come to an end and the sun is winding its way westerly about to set. It's evening time and shoeless Joe Jackson comes up to Ray and he says, hey, thanks Thanks for letting us play baseball in your field. It's time for us to go. We're going to be on our way. And the players begin to melt back into the corn. And right before they do, Shoeless Joe Jackson turns around and he looks at Ray and he says, 
if you build it, and he pauses and he looks over towards home plate. He says, if you build it, he will come. And so Ray Kinsella looks over at home plate, and there's the catcher, all done up with his catcher gear. And he stands up, and he yanks off his catcher's mask, and it's John Kinsella, a younger version of Ray's father, the ghost of his father that he never was able to reconcile with. And he walks over, and they have this moment, and they don't actually say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I had harsh words. You know, all that biblical stuff of reconciliation, yeah, that's totally missing from Hollywood. You wouldn't expect it to actually be there. But they have this moment, and they kind of shake heads and look at each other, and it's kind of like, yeah, okay, we're reconciled now. You just sort of come to that conclusion. And then the father, John Kinsella, starts to walk away. And as he's walking away, it's this great moment where the, the camera zooms in on Kevin Costner's face, and he gets all emotional, and again, it's Kevin Costner acting, so you have to kind of work with it. It's kind of this weird look on his face. But you know he's emotional, and he says, hey, Dad, you want to play catch? And just as his dad's about to hit the cornfield, he stops, and he turns around, and he says, yeah, I'd love that. And he comes back, and the movie ends with him and his dad playing catch. For so many of us, we look at this movie, and we see there a clear parallel to our relationship with God the Father. But the movie gets it critically wrong. In the movie, Ray has to do all this work to build this cornfield in order to bring about reconciliation with his father. And the Bible says it's exactly the opposite. The father does all this work to bring about reconciliation with you. And at the end of the day, he absolutely does want to play catch. Pitching back and forth. Love between father and child. Your heavenly father wants to know you and he wants to have a relationship with you and he wants to engage in this giving and taking of love. And his expectation in Matthew chapter 25 is that as you strive to get to know him better, you will take that love and because of your faith in him, you will love people in the church. And so I conclude this morning right where John has us. Beloved, if God so loved us, let us love one another. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord, that you supremely demonstrated your love for us in that wonderful act of sacrifice. You loved us for our sake, that being the supreme demonstration of your glory and your righteousness. Father, I pray that we would love others that same way. When we come, Lord, to that day in which you will be separating sheep from goats, Father, I pray that we, all of us here at First Baptist, may be found in that camp of sheep who truly understood and knew your love and loved as you loved us. God, let it be so here among us at First Baptist, we pray in Christ's name, amen.